Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 133 with Pere Yurtis BM of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Go, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Barbara Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hello, guys. Welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. My name is Nathan Chan. I'm the CEO and publisher of Founder Magazine and the host of the Founder Podcast. I'm coming to you live from Melbourne, Australia, hometown, homegrown, homeborn, and uh, it's currently 1.30 a.m. burning the midnight oil Uh just doing a whole ton of recording uh, in prep for a, a little bit of a, a US tour, which I'm really, really pumped about. Um, I'm going to oversee the printing of the book. Uh, if you haven't checked out, for all of our community members that did uh, support our Founder Version 1.0 book, thank you so much. Uh, you will be getting the book in April, and uh, we are on track and on time, just putting the final touches on the book. And I'm going to oversee the printing in uh, Winnipeg, uh, Canada. I'm really pumped and uh, I can't wait to share it with you guys. I know you guys are going to absolutely love it. If you haven't checked out the book, make sure you do. Founder version 1.0. If you go to foundermag, F-O-U-N-D-R-M-A-G.com forward slash book, uh, you'll be able to check it out. But uh, that's uh, what's happening with me. So going on a little trip and uh, things are working really well with... Uh, just the team and the growth and the goals and everything that was set for the year. So really feeling the momentum. We're working on some really cool things for you guys and uh, really going to scale up content uh, free and premium. You know, we're both literally 10xing uh, on both sides, free and premium. So yeah, really exciting times, guys. Um, so now let's talk about today's guest. 
Her name's uh, Prey BM, and uh, she is an incredible founder. Uh, she's the founder of a company called Salmatics, and they're a New York biotech firm putting big data through its paces with some remarkable results. Uh, so, you know, she's creating world, you know, world first products. Uh, one of their products is called Polaris. It's a cloud based platform that uses big data to optimize the treatment of fertility patients. Uh, so she's doing incredible work and she talks about all sorts of growth strategies. And this is a really, really interesting niche and market that I've never spoken to someone that's serving. Uh, it's all about big data. It's all about genetics. It's all about science. And uh, yeah, how she's growing this company is really, really cool. I know you guys are going to really enjoy this episode. So guys, if you are enjoying this, I just realized, this is funny, I just realized that I never tell people to subscribe. And I have a feeling you know, almost 150 episodes later, I should have been doing that for the past two years because if we did, we'd get a lot more downloads. So if you are enjoying these episodes, please do subscribe. Please do share them with your friends, other founders that you're friends with, you know, your crew, uh, anyone that will get value. It helps more than you can imagine. Uh, the more you spread the word, the more you help our mission. Our mission now is to produce content that impacts the lives of tens of millions of people on a monthly basis. This is across our whole platform, the blog, the podcast, the magazine, our social content, our video content, you name it. So that's what we're working towards in the next couple of years. So please do help by sharing if you can. And that's enough rambling from me. Now let's jump into the show. The first question I ask everyone uh, that comes on is, how did you get your job? So I made my job. <laughs> um, my my husband jokes that I've never had a real job, um, which I, I think in many ways is true. I am the founder and, and CEO of Cellmatics, personalized medicine company focused on uh, fertility and women's health, leveraging big data and genomics to help people make more proactive decisions about their fertility. But before I founded Cellmatics, I was in academia, so I was a student, graduated from my PhD, and then did a, a postdoctoral stint, and then really went straight from my postdoc into founding the company. So um, I guess that's my best answer. Yeah, gotcha. So I guess um, to to found this company, you had to come up with some sort of, I guess, proprietary technology to be able to analyze this this data and everything like that? Yes. Yeah, so right now we're in in year seven. Um, so I founded the company in 2009. I actually co-founded it with my graduate school roommate, uh, Laura Bandak. And uh, the idea came to me really from the research I was doing. So I had in my graduate work in New York City, um, I had previously been a cancer researcher. So I was lucky to start grad school the year that they decoded the first human genome. And that cost billions of dollars. <laughs> and just to give you some sense of how quickly the field has moved, we routinely generate whole genome sequences now for around $1,000. So I was really generation one of the post-genomic era. And um, a few years into my PhD work, 
I worked on a project which in retrospect was really the first personalized medicine project uh, in pharmacogenomics and, and oncology. So cancers really used to be treated based on uh, origin um, of the tumor. So a breast cancer or a, you know, a brain tumor or a, a lung cancer. And how cancers are treated today is that they really want to understand on a genetic level what's gone wrong with those cells. And then based on that, they can target a very specific medication that hopefully will be more effective for that tumor. So as a result, they may treat a breast cancer the same as they treat a colon cancer um, if they have the same thing that's going wrong under the hood, if that makes sense. And so that's really, that's called precision medicine, personalized medicine, and it's genomics, you know, and the sequencing of the human genome is really what has enabled medicine to move into that really precise and personalized zone. So I was lucky to work on one of the first projects where I was a graduate student at Cornell's Medical School in the Upper East Side in New York City, and they had patients coming in with uh, lung cancer. And we noticed that patients who had a particular mutation, uh, which is a genetic alteration in their tumor, were more likely to respond to a drug than patients who didn't. So I kind of early on was infected with this assumption that before you make a really important health decision or treatment decision, you really want to understand on a genetic level, you know, on the deepest possible level, what's going on. And then later, as happens in life uh, as a scientist, my, my area of focus took a turn and I really started to become one of the world's experts in the genes that are important for making a high quality egg in a human, in a mouse, uh, in mammals. And then what all of the other genes were that were necessary in all of those stages of early development to get to a viable embryo that could yield a, a healthy outcome. So then uh, with with that, I was I was really studying, you know, the molecular genetics of early development. And I happened to be in Cambridge the year that they were celebrating the 40th anniversary of the first successful in vitro fertilization experiment. So the, the, the first baby wouldn't be born until 10 years later, but the first paper was a na nature paper that came out in 1969. And I, in that symposium, it was the first time that I had really heard pain points that patients were going through. So they were talking about patients who were undergoing in vitro fertilization, which is a really expensive and, and difficult procedure to go through. And they were talking about how they were failing round after round for unexplained reasons. And they started to describe these patients. And I thought, wow, they sound a lot like the mice that I worked with <laughs> in graduate school. And you know, and I knew that in oncology, this revolution, this genomic revolution, personalized medicine was happening. And I said, just kind of naively, well, who's bringing personalized medicine to fertility and more broadly to women's health in general? And the answer is no one was really taking a big swing at it. And so um, in retrospect, at the time, it did not feel crazy. But in retrospect, it was a bit of a flight of insanity to leave my post academic post in Cambridge and, and just start a company with, you know, zero funding, um, zero savings. But um, yeah, I just took the leap because I just, I thought, well, this has to exist. This is, this is important. If nobody's applying personalized medicine to fertility and women's health, then, you know, I'll do it. So that's kind of how I got my job. Gotcha. This is really fascinating. So take me back 2009. Um, you realized that there was a problem here that you wanted to solve. And it sounds like you have a, a pretty strong competitive advantage in the sense that, uh, you know, you said that you're 
you you know this stuff better than most people in the world. So what happened next? Did you just get a lab and your you and your co-founder and you just start researching, or, or how did did you have to raise capital? How does this work? Well, so another thing that was really cool about the timing of somatics is just like I happened to have started grad school when we decoded the first human genome, I happened to start somatics at a time when the sharing economy was really picking up. So this was the early days of cloud computing. This was the early days of co-working spaces. This was the early days of Dropbox and you know all of these things that you can um, leverage in the virtual world. When I got started, we assumed we would need a hugely capital intensive, you know, laboratory research project, et cetera. And what we learned was that actually in that year, in 2009, when we found the company, you could accomplish virtually everything you needed to accomplish until you actually were ready to commercialize a test virtually. So I started the company in my friend Laura's living room. You know, I mean, we were there we were in Tribeca on her couch on laptops. And, and that was our team for a while, you know, and um, we got a lot done. Um, it was really, we, we, we leveraged public databases for a lot of the insights. We found uh, genomics platform providers who um, were not doing a ton of outsourced sequencing, but they were, they were thinking about that. And, and, and now it's the standard. Nobody buys their own machines anymore. I mean, some people do, large institutions do, but a lot of people outsource to, to centers. And I was getting on planes and flying around. We actually shipped some of our first samples to Iceland. You know, So we were very creative in leveraging um, other people's hard resources so that we could stay very lean. And so in some ways, you know, people, people have said that we're a unique case study um, for what we've called Biotech 2.0 which is that traditionally investors, individuals see biotech and healthcare innovation as something that's capital intensive, requires a lab coat and a lab. And we proved that it doesn't. You know, you can actually get a biotech company off the ground with the risk profile in some senses of a technology company. You don't have to build huge server farms. You can leverage the cloud. And look, we were on the bleeding edge of all of this stuff. I remember when parts of AWS wouldn't talk to each other. And we were we were really figuring this out from scratch, a lot of these systems uh, from scratch. But we were in one of the first co-working spaces. Eventually, we evolved into WeWork, which is now a very well-known company. Um, but we were one of the first you know, inhabitants here in New York. But we were in a kind of pre-WeWork co-working space after we graduated from the living room. And um yeah so so that's how we got our start yeah okay i see and how did you work out to create your first product like what did you said that uh you could find a lot of the things that you needed online but what happened next well so for the initial experimental design and, and some of the proof of concept we could do a lot of that virtually what we also did was we started building clinical partnerships with medical centers so our first partner was cornell university here in new york city um, after that another large clinic army of new york came on board and now we've got something that we call the prime initiative or the personalized reproductive medicine initiative which is institutions from all over the U.S. that um, enroll patients in our clinical study. They get a tube of blood with consent from the patient. They give us the clinical and outcome data. And then um, we outsource the sequencing of that um, so we don't need a laboratory for that. And then we do the, the data crunching and the big data work internally, again, leveraging cloud computing. But now we're an 80-person company, so we've got our own servers and we've got you know our own office and things like that. But in the early days, 
you know, we were doing experiments, so it wasn't all public data sets. Um, but our first product really was was a happy accident on the way to building our genetic test. So the the original mission of the company was to try to bring genetics into the picture, right? For people to um, be able to make these life-defining decisions about, you know, do I do IVF or not? How many cycles do I do? Do I stop? Do I keep going? Do I get an egg donor? You know, do I do embryo screening of my eggs? And then more broadly than that, for any woman to say, is it okay for me to wait until 35? Is this enough eggs for me to put away if I'm freezing my eggs, et cetera, right? So that was really the original mission. Um, but doing that experiment, you know, discovering those genetic biomarkers is a hard experiment to do because one of the things that we realized early on is when people do these types of genetic experiments, they often do what we call a case control, which is that they have a group of people who have a disorder and then a group of people who do not. And then they say, what's different? Okay. But when you're talking about fertility, fertility is such a spectrum right? Some people have one miscarriage. Some people have six miscarriages. Some people get pregnant on their first in vitro fertilization cycle. Some people get pregnant on their eighth in vitro fertilization cycle. So it's hard, you know, aside from diagnoses, which are also very squishy in our space, right? Endometriosis is a condition that impacts 10% of all women. Um, it's not very well understood. Last year, it got less than $10 million of funding from the U.S. government, from the NIH. So it's, it's very heterogeneous. So it's, it's hard to do case control experiments around fertility. So what we wanted to do instead was we said, okay, let's take a step back and let's just partner and with collaborators and let's get large electronic medical record data sets related to fertility outcomes. And let's look at all of the data. Let's look at the whole toolbox that physicians have right now. So that's hormone levels, sperm parameters metrics about a woman's endometrium, how long she's been trying, how regular her periods are, all of that kind of data. Let's get all the data that we can and try to get a better handle on the spectrum, right? And in the time to live birth or the time to conception when you start fertility treatments, et cetera. And then let's discover the genetic biomarkers in the context of multivariate algorithms that can really take into account all these heterogeneities instead of just having this case control of like, people who got pregnant, people who didn't get pregnant, right? So that's what we did. We kind of, we were, we were barreling down the road of genetic biomarker discovery and then realized, wait, this is, case control is not the way to go. This is too complex. So then we took a step back and we built actually one of the largest and richest clinical data, outcome data sets um, of non-genetic information. And we started to build these predictive models. And one of the, the sets of models that we predict, uh, that we built were a set of models that would help when a, when a patient walked in the door at a fertility clinic, for a physician to understand if they were to continue having timed intercourse at home, or if they were to continue having non-in vitro fertilization uh, cycles, or if they were to start IVF, and then if they added embryo screening or didn't, et cetera, if they waited into the future, what did all those timelines look like? Because what we wanted to do was then try to understand what are the genetic factors that power our insights beyond the existing toolbox that physicians have. But what was really cool was we were presenting this data at medical conferences and um, the doctors in our network said, wait, you have these analytics? You can make, <laughs> you can make these predictions? This is way richer of a data paradigm than we use in counseling right now because it turns out that you know, most people counsel based on age and they also counsel on a cycle level, not on a journey level. So, so much of fertility, it's not about 
I tried for a month and I didn't get pregnant. It's about I tried for a year or I did multiple IVF treatments. And now maybe I'm, I'm starting to learn this is not the best um, route for me to achieve, you know, the family that I'm, I'm going for. But, but they said, we would love to counsel on a journey level. We would love to counsel with big data and to, to tell somebody instead of for a 35 year old in one cycle of IVF, here are your chances to be able to say, wow, let's look at all the possibilities. Let's look at the whole journey and let's really craft together using data as our guide, the best solution to help you get to a baby, right? Not just now, but for the whole family that you're planning, right? Because it's not just about getting to a pregnancy now. It's about how do we make a smart set of decisions over the course of your reproductive lifespan to help you get to the family size that you want, right? So anyway, so doctors were very passionate about that. So then we said, okay, well, we can build an interface. So then we kind of became a technology company because we had to deploy these big data models in a commercial setting. And then the physicians mm -hmm. got so excited. They said, oh, well, you guys are pretty good at building technology products. Can you solve these other technology problems that we have? So we still do intake on paper. You know, when you go to a doctor, you get handed a clipboard, you know, the clipboard. And every time you go in, you still fill in the same freaking information and you say, okay, didn't I just fill in this clipboard? Well, we're trying to move away from that, right? We're trying to move to a place where you have one integrated electronic medical record. It follows you around, et cetera. So imagine if you're going through a fertility treatment, you get a 25 page clipboard, you know, and it's a lot of information and there's a lot of attrition between the time that somebody calls a fertility clinic and the time they actually see a practitioner because there's so much information you have to put together. It discourages people. It's a barrier. It also leads to poor counseling because the physician then has to go through all that information. You know, when you're sitting in the doctor's office, you hear them shuffling through the papers in the hallway. Imagine if they're like shuffling through 25 pages of your medical history. So then what we built was a kind of patient concierge that in a HIPAA compliant way would would allow patients to digitally capture all this information so that a physician could really digest it and come up with a plan before the patient even walked in the door. And then they could layer the predictive analytics reports into the conversation. So we've kind of evolved into really this very rich counseling platform that welcomes the patient from the first point of contact, brings all of that rich data to life, and then allows the physician to really maximally use that intake data and then the treatment level data that they're getting. And the platform gets smarter and smarter the more we learn about a patient. So if they fail a treatment cycle, you know, we've learned something new about how they respond to hormone stimulation, for example. And the, and the, the models get smarter and more personalized to that patient. And then the next step for us now, you know, seven years into the research we've been doing is um, just now bringing genetics into it, um, which is really exciting for us. I see. So when it comes to, I guess, the the process how do you guys like uh like how, how do you charge for something like that in terms of like a business model what does that look like we we did a lot of thinking about this as well and where we landed was that the genetic test will be paid for by the patient and and this is not a novel business model so um there are genetic tests that already exist that guide reproductive decisions so uh carrier screening you know companies like council etc Pre-implantation genetic screening of embryos um, that's paid for by patients. And then also there's non-invasive prenatal testing um, of, of fetal abnormalities and aneuploidies. So people already pay for genetic tests, right? If you have hereditary uh, breast cancer in your family, you might pay for a breast cancer, um, you know, BRCA gene test or something like this. So similarly, our, 
Our genetic tests will be paid for by patients, uh, but the analytics platform is a, a license that the clinics pay for because for them, they're able to deliver such a better patient experience and they're able to deliver data-driven counseling and personalization. And for the fertility clinics, um, you know, that's important to them, that patient experience. It's already really hard to go through fertility treatments. So these clinics that are on our platform recognize that and they want to make that journey just a little bit easier and a little bit more transparent for the patient. So they pay a license fee. Got you. So it's B2B and B2C. Yeah. So I, I, I don't say that it's B2B. I say it's B2D. We're, we sell the doctors. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. This B2B is fast- it's a little different than B2B. B2B. <laughs> gotcha. All right. This is fascinating. So talk to me around the traction that you guys have now, because you're, you're, you're a software company too, and you have this algorithm. Um, you obviously you know, are constantly working on this software. So can you talk to us about traction that you've had thus far, like where we're at right now around patients that you've helped, growth rates uh, of the company, raised capital, yes or no, uh, valuation? Yeah, I, I'd love to hear. Yeah, so we've uh, we've raised uh, capital from institutional investors. We have not uh, been public about our valuation. Um, I personally think valuation is a distraction. Um, I think the important thing is um, just the health of your cap table, whether the key employees uh, are have the right incentives, um, and all the stakeholders have the right incentives. Um, and and I think we we have a very healthy one. So yeah, so we're backed by by venture capital. We have about 80 employees now and growing across, I guess, four different states in the U.S. And uh, we have a laboratory now in Brooklyn, and and we've actually just signed a lease on on a an additional laboratory in New Jersey. So we're expanding on that front too. Mm-hmm. We our our platform is in use at 12 centers from coast to coast, and and growing. We're about to expand internationally in 2017. And um, we have had um, about one in 10 patients in the U.S. counseled on our platform in the last year, which for us has been a huge point of pride because we have a you know, small direct sales team. And it's really been a lot of word of mouth. Besides having an amazing product that's solving a massive problem, what else, because this is what you're clearly doing and you're doing amazing work, um, I'm just curious, what else could you contribute to the growth? What has been what has been incremental that has allowed you to get to where you are today? Our, our biggest vision is that right now women make life-defining decisions about whether to freeze their eggs, uh, whether to do fertility treatment, and when to start a family based off of age. I mean, that's really the metric that women use. And um, what we know from our data sets is that that's a risk, right? So plenty of women can get pregnant in their 30s, even their early 40s, but most women cannot. And so by just going off of generalized metrics of, yeah, I think my fertility will decline around 40, you're gambling. And we have women who have gone into menopause, um, you know, as early as 24, you know, 21 in our data sets. And so we think it's really important for women to make those life-defining decisions based off of their personal biology. And genomics is really at the root of that. So I think that that mission it resonates with so many people. It's been that 
it, we're in a very competitive market in New York City. So we compete for designers, we compete for engineering talent, we compete for every kind of talent. But we really haven't struggled. When I go to when I go to some meetings and I listen in the New York ecosystem about the challenges to building and scaling technology and and biotechnology companies here, I, I often hear that it's really talent. And like, look, talent is is the core. It, it is the everything at a company. But um, we have not had that experience. And you know, so I want to acknowledge that it's there. But I just want to say that I think that the mission that we have it resonates so much. So, for example, we had an employee who came and and he later was on, on vacation with his wife uh, on safari and he came back and he said, it was amazing. Here we are on safari and I start to tell somebody what I do. And then all of a sudden the entire you know circle around the fire is listening to me. And then everybody starts sharing their story about their miscarriage or how they're struggling with fertility treatments or their friend is, is struggling or their family member is struggling. This a uh, story about fertility and the questions that people have and the, the lack of answers that they have, it really is so impactful. It's not discussed. And so I think the mission um, has really, really helped us move the business forward. The other thing is that I can personally relate to this. <laughs> this is this is my age group, right? I started the company when I was 30. I'm 37 now. Um, and also uh, in the last, I'm, I'm on my third pregnancy. I'm actually currently pregnant, due in March. Oh, wow. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. And this is my third, this will be my third child, fourth pregnancy. I had a pregnancy loss early on. And so I really, as I was making the discoveries, as I was helping you know, uh, articulate the vision, the product vision, et cetera, as a founder, I was living all of these questions, right? And there's just something, you know, you mentioned that I have this advantage because I have this technical expertise, right? That I understand the genetic factors on a level that most people don't, or at least didn't when we founded the company. And, but I also, from a product standpoint, really understand it. And our head of product is in a similar age group and, and kind of, has been building her family and my co-founder, you know, in the early days as well, um, you know, was going through this journey. So I think part of it is that we're building products for ourselves and for our daughters. Um, so this is really, it's personal, you know, um, it's not just something that we have a technical edge on. We have a personal insight and edge on this. The other thing that I would say is that people often say to me, you know, how did you succeed despite the fact that you were trying to build something at the bleeding edge in New York City, right? So the New York City ecosystem is really starting to boom, but it really was not uh, when we started the company. So I, I get asked, you know, how did you get this company off the ground despite being in New York? And then I get asked, how did you get this company off the ground despite being a female founder or despite being pregnant or despite being a mother, right? So people assume that these things are a disadvantage. And again, I don't want to minimize the challenges, right? There are challenges. But one of the things that's been really amazing is how when working on solutions to overcome these challenges, we happened upon other things that I think ultimately made us the great company that we are. So when you think about building a company in a, in a new developing ecosystem like New York, and I know there are people who are now trying to replicate these models, you know, the Boston model or the San Francisco model, in Minnesota or in Missouri, you know, all over the, in Detroit, in Miami. And I think one of the great things about being in a, you know, in a disadvantaged ecosystem, if you will, is that it really forces you to be lean with capital, 
And so we're, we're hoping to get to profitability next year. And that's unheard of for a company that um, typically has had our lifespan and is working on, you know, the types of things and, and, and the types of ways that we're doing. But in a sense, we were challenged by our environment to be more lean and to be really, really conscious of every dollar that left the company. It wasn't a luxury. You know, it was it was a necessity. And um, so I think there are things about New York that have forced us to be. But but the good news is we are now a much more stable and sustainable organization as a result. And then thinking about the fact that I'm a female founder, I'm a mother, I'm, I'm pregnant, all those things that I think typically people would see as a disadvantage, it has forced me to build an awesome team around me, right? It has forced me to get out of my entrepreneurial personality of wanting to command and control and be a perfectionist <laughs> down to the smallest <laughs> little detail, right? It just, it is the cliche. I am the cliche. Anyone around me would, would acknowledge that, but it has forced me to collaborate it has forced me to delegate. It has forced me to trust people because I have been in these periods of kind of physical incapacitation, right? Where I have had to say, okay, well, I have to trust my team. And what I've learned from that is you can trust your team if you build the right team. And so I think even though I, I feel like our organization has a benefit of all of the crazy things that you would associate with a Steve Jobs, right? Just driven, focused, demanding, perfectionist, opinionated, et cetera, except for I was forced out of all of those zones into a place of collaboration and team building and consensus building and delegation, et cetera. And so I think we've had a stronger organization as a result. And then the other thing is that I was really moved in Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In, when she told an anecdote about when she was pregnant and she uh, was in the parking lot and walking to Google and it was such a long walk and she thought, oh my gosh, we need pregnant lady parking, right? <laughs> and, and asked the founders and they said, sure. And she made the point, you know, this is why we need women in leadership positions because it's not that male founders or CEOs won't do things that are family friendly or, or female friendly. It's that it doesn't occur to them. They can't relate. And in that moment, she felt the sense of, of, of shame to think, oh my gosh, all of these women at Google who have had babies who have never spoken up about this, right? And so I think for me too, we have a, lactation suite in our office. We have paid maternity leave and, and secondary caregiver leave. You know, we, we have become a very humane organization as a result of the fact that I can relate, you know, and, and it, it's important to me that people are supported in those ways that I needed to be supported in during all of these important life transitions. And so one of the things that I think allows us to recruit and maintain excellent talent in a really competitive market is that people feel that strong sense of commitment to the humans. You know, it's not just, we aren't one of these organizations where who cares the human cost, we're moving the world forward. For us, they're one and the same, right? That we're moving the world forward by, by progressing individuals as well. That's really important to us. That was a fantastic answer. Thank you. A um, couple more questions. I had to ask, you're right, a lot of people say that um, being a parent or a mother or uh, running a company is just not ever possible for them when you have a family, et cetera, et cetera. What would you say to people that, that often um, say that is a, a hard barrier to entry to overcome? I think it is a hard barrier to entry to overcome for sure. 
And one thing that I want to stress is that my situation is unique because I'm not the breadwinner of my family. Um, so my husband is able to support me in, in my goals of entrepreneurship and, and being a mom and, and being able to also move the company forward. So I have caretakers. I have a team at home in addition to a team at work, right? I think that's really important for, for me to be very transparent, open about, because I, I do think sometimes people say, oh my God, you're doing it all. How do you do it? You're magic. I'm not magic. I have a team. You, you need a team. And, um, I'm also very lucky that I have two wonderful, healthy children. Right. And so I, I do want to acknowledge that people with special needs children or people who don't have the financial means to build a team at home, right. That, that those barriers are real. Right. So I, I think it would be unfair and, 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 and not genuine of me to not just be open about the advantages that I've had that have allowed me to excel in, in both domains, if you will. Right. Um, but, you know, to that point, I think this is an opportunity for us to have a conversation on a societal level about is that fair? Do we really want just women who, who happen to have a spouse or a, you know, a family or, or a previous career where they saved up and, and they have this other source of capital that can help them build the team at home to help them, you know, continue to be focused at work. Um, is that fair? I, I don't think so. I mean, this is why I think we need universal daycare. We need um, support for working moms, because I, I do think that we we lose the potential of 50 percent of the population, more than 50 percent of the population when we make those things very real barriers for, for mothers to succeed. So um, that's my best answer for that. Yeah, no, look, I really appreciate the transparency. Um, all right, well, last question, um, then we have to work towards wrapping up. In terms of profitability, this one um, is something that I I always wrestle with and I always like to ask because we're a bootstrap startup and um, we've been profitable uh, very early on. So... My question is to you, when you're raising capital and, you know, you have investors, how do you know when is the right time to turn on the switch uh, and, 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 you know, sacrifice, stop sacrificing growth for profit? I, I think it's a really fine line, right? And I think that maybe a way to think about it is how you think about debt, right? Debt is great. Debt is what drives the U.S. economy. It keeps systems fluid. It allows you to grow fast. Debt can also be the end of you, right? And so I think it's the same thing for an early stage company that's trying to balance getting to profitability, creating a sustainable platform with growth. Because the reality is when you do get to profitability, depending on your sector and what your goals are, what your exit strategy is, you know, that may not be the best choice for you. You may be judged on those profits and, you know, versus, you know, being judged on the potential. I think for us, it's, it's a tightrope. Um, and we have always tried to balance a deep investment in R&D and really making sure that we're not so focused on getting a particular product to profitability so quickly that then we kind of become a one-trick pony of like, great, well, we, we got to profitability, we have this one product, but now we're going to get judged as a multiple of that, and we haven't really invested in the next thing, and here comes a competitor, and now we're in trouble, right? So I think that, you know, to be fair, it will, it will have been a, a pretty long journey, eight years in our case, you know, we're hoping, you know, to get to profitability, but some health, you know, healthcare technology and, and healthcare companies in general, I mean, startups in general, they're given a free pass on that one a lot. You know, oh, forget about profitability. It's all growth. It's all growth. 
And at least for me, the advisors that we've had, our board, our investors, you know, the advisors that advise us on commercial um, aspects of our development really have urged us to to walk a tight rope between growth and, and profitability and, and make sure that we don't let either side get too out of control. Um, and, and I think that's right, because there's a lot of things when you're building a company you can't control. You know, there are forces beyond you in the economy and you don't want to go all in on one thesis, right? That you never have to worry about being a profitable company. And then suddenly the the ground shifts from below you and that's no longer a popular business model to fund. You know, now you're in trouble because you haven't built a sustainable anything. Um, on the other hand, if you're so focused on profitability that you don't invest in R&D and innovation and, and think about what's one year, two year, five years down the road and are we building a, a pipeline to that, then I think you can get judged in a different way. Yeah, no, this is this is a great insight. So thank you so much. Well, look, um, we can uh, wrap there, but where's the best place people can find Cellmatics and a little bit more about yourself? The best place to find out more about Cellmatics is our, on our website. So C-E-L-M-A-T-I-X.com. Um, people can find the nearest uh, fertility center that is using our products. They can learn a little bit more about our products and we'll be making ongoing announcements over 2017. We've got a lot of very exciting things coming up so they can put their email address in there as well and, and, and stay in touch with us. Um, so that's probably the best way. Awesome. Well, look, thank you so much for your time. Um, you're fantastic and, uh, I wish you all the best. Thank you so much, Nathan. Really appreciate it. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.